Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters, welcome back to the podcast. Back for a third time is famed climatologist Dr. Michael Mann. What a treat to host Mike. We covered a lot of ground. Mike describes his shortened sabbatical in Australia. He arrived basically when the bushfires we heard about got out of control. We talk about the climate media coverage in Australia and how the anti-science response to COVID-19 mirrors much of what he's dealt with with the climate denial movement. We also briefly discuss Michael Moore's new anti-environmental movie and why Mike thinks the messaging there is so dangerous. It's a great conversation and always a thrill to have Mike on. Also, after my conversation with Mike, I have a brief conversation with Dr. Kate Bishop-Williams about the podcast in the classroom initiative she's been working on with my podcast. Stick around for that. Okay, I also want to acknowledge that Dr. Mann was just elected to the prestigious National Academy of Sciences. I would have congratulated him during my podcast, but he literally heard the news hours after our recording was done. What a well-deserved honor, and I want to congratulate him here before our conversation. Upcoming episodes. Moore McDonald, the Environment Program Director for the Walton Foundation, shares the great conservation work that they're doing. After that, former Democratic presidential candidate and investor Tom Steyer is on. We dug in on him running on a climate platform. Also, I'll be talking with former U.S. Senator Russ Feingold about a new international biodiversity initiative that he's involved in. Some great episodes coming your way, folks. Okay, I want to mention the work I'm doing with Sympatico Studios. I'm hosting live talk shows on the Climate Adaptation Channel on Sympatico.tv. Right now, we're recording pilots, and I've recently recorded my 50th pilot. I've been able to talk with some amazing climate professionals from around the world. If you're a professional in this space, maybe we can have a conversation about the important work you're doing. It's actually a relatively simple process to participate. Videos from all episodes are professionally produced, and you can use them on your own website and social channels like YouTube. If you are looking for opportunities for remote working, Simpatico is definitely something you should look into. And we're also encouraging you just to come check things out. Come watch a live show and join the community room. The software is behind a firewall, so reach out to me or go to simpatico.com and put in your information and you'll get directions on how to get into a show. Yes, it's free. We want you to check things out and see what Simpatico is all about. Okay, let's jump into this conversation with Dr. Michael Mann. Hey, welcome back, Adapters. On today's exciting episode, I'm hosting famed climatologist Dr. Michael Mann. Dr. Mann is the Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science and the Director of the Earth System Science Center at Pennsylvania State University. Hi, Mike. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Doug. It's good to be back with you. So I just want to jump right into this. We are living in sort of crazy times, but how are you dealing with the coronavirus? I I mean, I guess literally, because all, I guess, universities are doing everything remotely. Yeah, and I'm on sabbatical this year, so I'm not doing my usual uh, teaching and other sort of academic tasks, which makes it a little bit easier uh, for me because I've mostly just been using this time to catch up on other work, on research and doing outreach and, and all the other things that I do. Now, it did have substantial impact on my plans because my sabbatical was supposed to be in Sydney, Australia for six months. And with the COVID-19 crisis emerging, I made the decision to sort of jump ship early and leave Sydney while I was still sure I could get back to uh, my home here in the U.S. So I ended up having to to cut that uh, visit short. And what was so striking was when I arrived in Sydney in Australia in mid-December, of course, there was another crisis that they were dealing with, an unprecedented climate-driven 
crisis, unprecedented heat and and drought, which gave rise to these epic bushfires that broke out around the country. And I was literally in the middle of it on the front lines. I could see the smoke. I could smell it in the air. I could see the devastation. And that ultimately sort of subsided. Eventually, the rains came, but fortunately, they were flooding rains, which created a whole nother problem. And this is one of the ironies of climate change that we can see increases in extremes at both ends of the scale, extreme drought and heat and and bushfire. But then when the rains finally come, the atmosphere is warmer than it used to be. It holds more moisture. So when you do get rain, you get more of it in in short periods of time. And the reservoirs went from essentially empty to about three quarters full in the space of a few days, which it turns out is extremely problematic. And there was a lot of flooding and that created a whole uh, array of problems. Well, they didn't really have time to recover from all of that devastation, all that climate-related devastation, because by the time that started to subside, of course, we had this other, this other crisis, a more acute crisis by some measure in the form of COVID-19 coronavirus. And so those folks down in Australia didn't really have an opportunity to rest, to, to sort of right. take stock of what they had just seen. It was from one crisis on to the next. And that's sort of the world that we're living in now. I wanted to talk to you about your time in Australia, and I didn't realize you actually cut your sabbatical short. And I guess yeah. a, a little bit more background. When did you arrive and why did you select Australia for a sabbatical besides the obvious reasons? It's a gorgeous place. But what, what were you planning to do yeah. there? Yeah, well, so I arrived in, in mid-December, which was really when the, the bushfires started. So I was there really at the inception of that of that whole you know, that, that, that apocalyptic event that right. we now look back on as, you know, again, an un- unprecedented devastation by the entire continent from these, from these bushfires. I went to, to Sydney to collaborate with uh, some scientists at the University of New South Wales, some of the leading scientists in the world when it comes to the study of the impacts of climate change on extreme weather events. And so, indeed, two years ago, when I first planned out this sabbatical, I had no idea that I would arrive in Sydney to actually witness the topic of study in a very profound way, arriving uh, just as these epic bushfires uh, emerged. Okay, you're there working with these researchers and all this is unfolding. What was it like having the conversations with these researchers as you're literally seeing the wildfires and the smoke out your window? Yeah, it was surreal, right? Because we're literally investigating the underlying physical mechanisms, um, some of the, the complex math and physics, actually, that is just, you know, behind some of the impacts that climate change is having on these extreme weather events. Some of the correct connections are pretty straightforward. You know, a warmer atmosphere holds more moisture, as I said before, so you get more extreme rainfall events. Obviously, more heat tends to give you worse drought and dries out the soil. It gives you more uh, extreme heat events. You know, a hotter planet, you're going to have more intense and frequent heat waves. So some of those connections are, are really straightforward. As I like to say, it's not rocket science. It's pretty basic. But there are other connections here. For example, the, the sort of stagnant behavior of weather systems, how we're getting these weather systems that tend to linger, extreme weather events that tend to linger for day after day, uh, days at a time. And that has to do with the behavior of the jet streams and uh, some of the subtleties in how climate change is impacting uh, the jet stream, tending to sort of slow it down 
and tending to lock in place some of these uh, extreme weather events. And so we've seen that in the United States with many of the most extreme weather events that we have experienced with the, the epic wildfires out west and the unprecedented flooding events back east, superstorms, wildfires, heat waves, drought. All of these impacts are being exacerbated by this change in the jet stream. And that's something that I've been studying now for a couple of years, and we've published some work on that. And most of our past work was focused on the northern hemisphere. Here we wanted to take a closer look at the southern hemisphere and Australia in particular and how those mechanisms might be playing out and how they might be leading to an even more dramatic increase in these extreme weather events than climate models predict. Because the climate models don't do a good job in resolving some of these subtle mechanisms that I'm talking about. And for that reason, we think that climate models are actually underestimating uh, the impact that climate change is already having on these weather extremes and the impact that it will continue to have in the future if we continue down this path. So they must have just been very happy that you were there at the moment to kind of look at this stuff in real time. Were you actually able to work with any students? Was that part of what you were doing there? Yeah, I was doing a fair amount of outreach. And, and, and it turns out because these epic weather extremes unfolded in real time while I was there and I happened to be there, it turned out to be an opportunity to do a lot of public outreach and, and communication. And so I ended up spending much more of my time talking about these connections to the media and uh, public lectures and interviews. I ended up spending much more of my time talking about these connections than actually doing the research that I had gone there to do, examining these connections. But I did nonetheless have a chance to interact with uh, students and, and, and faculty and other researchers and academic from the entire community, which, you know, became part of a larger conversation that wasn't just about the science uh, of climate change and these mechanisms that we've been studying, but the impacts and the policy implications um, and especially what implications it has uh, for Australia, a country that right now is led by a prime minister and Scott Morrison who uh, really has shown little dedication to acting on climate and his administration, like our current administration here in the U.S., if anything, has been an obstacle to international agreements to do something about climate change. So it became part of an important larger conversation. You must have been amazed, I guess, with the media coverage. And I think the local media in Australia must have been thrilled that the, just by chance, Michael Mann is in Australia. And, and I saw a ton of it. You know, I follow you on social media very closely and you were you were in a lot of different places. And I and I bet it was yeah. such a great resource. So what did you think? Because, I mean, you go back on American media. It was huge here. Were you surprised it got such big coverage in the United States? Well, I wasn't. I wasn't, you know, was a bit surprised given that you know, here we are talking about calamity in a country that's far away from the United States, way off in the southern hemisphere, Australia. And yet there are so many similarities in terms of our politics, in terms of our histories between the two countries. So it's sort of interesting to sort of compare and contrast um, the way climate change impacts and, and, and climate policy is playing out in these respective countries. But I think ultimately what Australia came to be viewed as was sort of a, a laboratory where we can see what's going to happen to the rest of the world if we continue down this path. In a sense, Australia is sort of the worst possible continent you could 
uh, create if you were, you know, uh, it, it's the it's it's the worst continent you would create if you were trying to immunize yourself against the impacts of climate change because it's centered right on the dry subtropics. It's already very dry and very hot. And so just a, a little bit of heating and a little bit of drying easily puts you over the edge. And what we saw there was simply an unprecedented combination of heat and drought that uh, can lead actually to a dramatic increase in the prevalence, in the intensity, and in how quickly these uh, bushfires spread. It's what we sometimes call a nonlinear relationship, where sometimes we refer to it as sort of a tipping point as well, where just a little bit of a push can essentially push you over the edge. And, and the worry is that that's what we're starting to see now in Australia, that this will become a perennial problem for them, epic uh, heat and, and drought and bushfires um, every summer, and probably penetrating further and further into the rest of the year, like we're seeing in California, where California no longer has a, you know, a fire season. The entire year is a fire season. You know, bushfires, uh, what we call um, wildfires here in California, can now happen any time of the year because of the heating and the drying. But I think really in Australia, what we saw was a perfect storm of these factors coming together in a way that we had never seen before anywhere. And so it became this sort of uh, laboratory, like I said, for the rest of the world to, you know, observe and try to take lessons away from. And, and that's sort of, you know, where I found myself by happenstance in the center of, of all of that. Uh, and yet it did lead to media opportunities, uh, opportunities to really get the message out. It's sort of a Pyrrhic, uh, you know, win victory, if you will, because right. I would rather have not been talking about the death and devastation and destruction that we were witnessing. But unfortunately, it was, you know, sometimes um, out of tragedy can come opportunity. And it was an opportunity to have a, a conversation, a, a larger conversation about this problem and what to do about it. I don't think I've mentioned in previous conversations. I, I lived in Australia for about three and a half years, but it's been oh. a while since I've been there. So I know it very well. And I, yeah. and I think what, and I'm sure you, you probably are always fascinated by what gets traction in climate communication. And here in the United States, just even as some of those videos where those koalas are being burned or people helping those. Oh. That's, I think, why it went supernova over here in people's interest. And you hate to think that it, it takes just that, but I think that really created a narrative that people rallied around. Oh, absolutely. It was the imagery, the images, the scenes that we were seeing come out of Australia, um, a magpie that was mimicking the sound of a fire engine, a fire siren. Oh, wow. uh, talk, you know, it, truly disturbing. And yeah, you know, uh, koalas and wallabies and kangaroos literally uh, on fire. Um, it was it was horrific, and it it was a, a dystopian Hollywood film playing out in real time. And I think, as you allude to, that that's where the connection was. It was Mad Max right. actually happening. And in, I, ironically, as you probably know from having spent time there, uh, South Australia is actually where Mad Max and the sequels were filmed. Right. Um, not, not, not far away from where I was is where these, you know, the, the, these scenes of future destruction have been filmed. And, of course, they were witnessing unprecedented impacts from this event. You are attacked all the time by climate deniers. You you have the scars. So often I barely even notice it anymore. Right. Yeah. And so my my question is that you you had new territory there, and Rupert Murdoch, sort of the the 
grandfather of all this. You were there in his home turf. Did they yeah. start attacking you when you were speaking out so much in the media there? What was really surprising is that they they didn't. Um, and uh, and I wrote a, a number of columns in in the Guardian actually taking direct aim at them for promoting. And you know they and I think the larger context here is that they were promoting all sorts of misinformation and disinformation. I mean you know Soviet style disinformation, literally trying to mislead the public into thinking that these fires. Um, were a consequence of arson, and it was debunked, but by authoritative sources. But in the meantime, it got some traction because the Murdoch media has such a stranglehold on the media environment, as you know from having been there um, in Australia, that they can really control um, the larger narrative to uh, some extent. And and so they did create this false narrative that this had nothing to do with climate change, nothing to do with heat and drought. It was simply these, uh, you know, uh, arson. And, and it was just a lie. Right. But it was a lie that they promoted heavily. And in fact, it was such an egregious lie that what happened was People from within, whistleblowers from within the Murdoch empire came out and said, we cannot support this anymore. Wow. And this letter that was leaked from a from a News Corp employee lambasting the organization for promoting misinformation about this great tragedy, you know, misinformation that threatens human lives. And Rupert Murdoch's own son, James Murdoch, came out and blasted News Corp for promoting uh, misinformation. And so they were actually, and it doesn't happen very often, but but News Corp actually found themselves in a tough spot that they realized they couldn't get out of simply by doubling down in their usual tactics. And I'm absolutely certain that they brought in crisis manager <laughs> management teams because they were really uh, rightfully being lambasted for for promoting this misinformation. They were sort of on the defensive. And my guess is because they were on the defensive, they were a bit more averse to turning to their usual ad hominem attacks, sort of discredit the messenger attacks. That may have been why they didn't go after me, despite the fact that I was getting a huge amount of exposure and I was taking them to task in national forums in The Guardian and in the National Australian Broadcast Corporation show Q&A, which is um, this a panel discussion about sort of the the significant sort of uh, events that are taking place. And it's it's uh, a very uh, widely viewed program in Australia, has a huge audience, gets a lot of coverage. And and I use that opportunity to directly um, take aim at the Murdoch misinformation machine. So they knew I was there, no question about it. And, and they knew I was having some success in getting that message out. But I think that they were so much on the defensive over their tactics, um, the exposure of their dishonest tactics that they didn't. They didn't go after me. <laughs> That's great. When things are burning around you, it's harder to sort of attack people about future threats. And on that note, I want to get you to comment because I think you've been speaking out more uh, on Twitter, especially like you must be watching what's happening with the coronavirus and, and unfold with horror because of the yeah. similarities of what, you know, the climate denier movement. And it occurred to me that if we weren't yeah. socially distancing, that you should go out and have a beer with Dr. Fauci and give him some <laughs> pointers on what's happening around him right? right i mean what what's going on there and do you, where, where are the parallels with the climate denier movement yeah thanks there's so many parallels and uh, so many lessons to take away from this episode lessons about the dangers of anti-science 
And climate change is a bit more subtle because it's a problem that's emerged over decades. And, and, and the connection is, is invisible, right? It's uh, the CO2 in the atmosphere. People have a tougher time in making a direct connection between the death and destruction that's taking place now and climate change and the role that climate change is playing in exacerbating that threat. And it plays out more slowly. With coronavirus, you sort of have this amazing Again, it's a laboratory of sorts where you can watch the same dynamics play out over a much faster time scale. So we saw the evolution that we've seen in climate change, but it's taken decades with climate change. And it took literally weeks with coronavirus from outright denial, dismissing it as a hoax, which, you know, uh, Donald Trump did initially that it was a Democratic hoax, he claimed, to then downplaying the threat, then to say that we have alternative ways of dealing with this. We don't need to lock down. We can all of the the tactics that we've seen in what I call the the new climate war, which is denial uh, and delay and uh, equally important uh, deflection, deflecting away from the real problem. And all of those tactics that we've seen employed in what I call the, the new climate war, we saw deployed here by essentially the same individuals and institutions and groups. Um, in the case of climate change, you know, the Trump administration really has, you know, outsourced its uh, energy and environmental policy to the fossil fuel industry. They're running the show and they obviously see climate change as a uh, an inconvenient problem. And so the Trump administration has done their bidding by trying to discredit you know, the evidence um, and, and, and the scientific evidence of climate change and the impacts it's having to dismantling the various measures that have been taken by previous administrations to try to do something about climate change. So in that case, this sort of the, 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 the tactics of denial, delay, deflection are you know, by the Trump administration are an effort to advance the agenda of powerful special interests, the fossil fuel industry. Same thing here with COVID-19, those same interests. We've seen, you know, oil prices trading. You probably saw this at negative values, right? Like, what does that even mean? And, And there's a whole conversation to have about what that does mean. But we've seen crude oil trading at a negative price. Obviously, the fossil fuel industry is taking a huge hit. Um, other vested interests are taking a big hit because of the necessary lockdown to avert a catastrophic impact on, on human lives. And so it's the right thing to do. There's no question about it. But, you know, some vested interests are going to take a hit, at least in the short term. And so Trump's agenda to try to open up the economy plays to the interests of these powerful power brokers, the fossil fuel industry. And it also reflects an effort for him to try to preserve the chances for reelection because an economic downturn is seen as adverse to his chances to be reelected in this upcoming election. And if Donald Trump isn't reelected, then the fossil fuel industry doesn't have that rubber stamp anymore in the White House. And this is why there is a coalescence of the same conservative forces that have banded together to try to deny and discredit climate, discredit climate change. They're doing the same thing with coronavirus. Don't you think that uh, even the climate movement could learn from this? You think about climate change and so much of it yeah. are future impacts, even though like with Australia, what has happened today. Yeah. And then here we have with the coronavirus 
jeopardy that in, in people's lives literally at stake today right. and yet they're still being successful and i feel like there's this naiveness on our side that well just because climate change is harder to in, you know explain to people that's why they can get away behaving this way but we have these politicians behaving this way with people's lives on the line today we should learn something from that we really should yeah you know and and i actually think that's a dangerous gambit on their part and i am not convinced that they are being successful or ultimately that they will be successful. Uh, I suspect that um, the, the death, <laughs> the devastation that's playing out where people know, you know, people have family members and close friends who have contracted COVID-19. And in many cases, people know people who have died of it. Um, and these, you know, celebrities, famous people who have perished, uh, public figures who have perished now, from COVID-19. So it's so much more visible. The connection is so much more visceral than it is with climate change. Although, as you allude to, we're starting to make that visceral connection. People are no, no people who have been displaced by, you know, unprecedented superstorms and, and wildfires. And so people were getting to that point where there is a personal connection that people uh, are able to make between this problem and themselves. But it's much more profound in the case of COVID-19 slash coronavirus. And where, you know, my original uh, point here is that I actually think that they're lo- they, they, they might have won some short term battles, but they're going to lose the war here. I don't think Donald Trump gets reelected. And I think he doesn't get reelected because he and his party now have literally turned to essentially telling people to drink disinfectants. <laughs> Donald <laughs> Trump essentially. And that is, forgive the pun, so toxic, so politically toxic that the Republican Party is circulating talking point memos now, telling them to distance themselves right. as much as possible from his comments. They are in damage control mode. The polls, um, again, you know, polls can change over time. And, and there's always, uh, you know, some degree of uncertainty, especially in an age where bad uh, actors, uh, state actors like Russia um, have, have tried to sort of uh, game our political system to their advantage through voter suppression. And um, so there's always this worry that that our, our elections are still vulnerable to those sorts of attacks. But nonetheless, if you sort of try to tap into the zeitgeist of the moment, if, uh, you know, you see that, you know, it's an environment that looks pretty adverse now. Uh, increasingly so for Trump and the Republicans. Um, and if they lose this election and if Democrats take back the White House and the Senate to have control of both Congress and the presidency, then we've got an opportunity for real progress on all of these. That would be good news. And you've alluded to this, and I'm just hoping you could share on the podcast that you have a book in the works. And could you give us a, a bit of a preview on that or is it too premature for that? No, absolutely. It's it's going to come out after the election, but the uh, the draft has been written, and I'm going to be updating it as you know things unfold so rapidly. But it's uh, called uh, How to Win the New Climate War, and it's about sort of what we've talked about as the impacts of climate change become so obvious to the person on the street, and politicians realize that they can no longer get away with simply denying it. The sort of forces of inaction, the fossil fuel industry and those doing their bidding, are turning to sort of kinder, gentler forms of denial, uh, what I alluded to before, uh, delay and uh, deflection and doom mongering, despair mongering. It's so 
you know, there's nothing we can do about it now. So we might as well just continue burning fossil fuels because climate change is beyond, you know, our ability uh, to, to even stop it now. Uh, we're seeing the emergence of that line of argumentation. Ironically, in, in some circles on the left side of our political spectrum, but those flames are being fanned by the very same special interests by the fossil fuel industry because they don't care what leads you uh, toward a path of inaction whether it's denial or despair they just care they don't care about uh, the, the path they just care about the destination um they want you to give up the, in, in the fight and so the book is really about all these things how do we prevail in this new environment we find ourselves where the attack you know the enemy has changed its tax tactics in in, in some ways uh, employing far more nefarious uh, tactics uh, that are uh, in many cases more subtle and we have to recognize those tactics and and know how to deal with them um and that you know and there are all sorts of examples uh, we could go into maybe the next time we talk uh, this new Michael Moore film. Uh, <laughs> that was a question I had, but we can do it the next time. <laughs> well, just in short, you know, it's an attack on renewable energy and it comes from sort of, again, the left side of our political spectrum. So it has an impact on people that aren't normally sort of the target for climate change denial and delay messaging. Um, people on the sort of on the left side of the spectrum are especially vulnerable to messaging by somebody like Michael Moore, who's seen as sort of a, a liberal icon. And yet the message that he's promoting, which is dishonest, it's a truly dishonest attack on uh, renewable energy that looks like something that could have been produced by Rupert Murdoch. Yeah. But because the messenger is Michael Moore, it has salience with an entirely different audience. It's a bit shocking that Moore is involved with this. Yeah, and uh, and, and what's uh, problematic here is, look, a large segment of the right has already been bought out by the messaging, climate change denial messaging by the right, uh, by conservatives. So they're already, there's a large segment on the right side of our spectrum that is opposed to taking action on climate change because it's been become part of their tribal identity um, in conservative right. America to oppose action on climate. And so if the forces of denial and delay can, in addition, co-opt some on the left side of the spectrum, then they've got their coalition. They've got a, a very, you know, they've got a formidable uh, coalition against taking action on climate. And that's what a lot of the efforts that are taking place today, the new climate war, to some extent, is aimed at co-opting the left, getting them opposed to taking action on climate. And this Michael Moore film plays into it so perfectly that there is, in my view, no possibility that Michael Moore didn't understand exactly what he was doing. The only question that remains is why. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if he's, he's some he's playing chess or something, but I doubt it. He's just getting played, so it's very disappointing. Well, he's suddenly very relevant, you know, and right. it's been you know over a decade since Michael Moore has been all that relevant. So no question in my mind that's part of it. Unfortunately, hitching his wagon to you know perhaps the defining issue of our time. It's a way to try to make himself relevant again. Well, there's a million topics I want to talk with you, but I, I know you need to get off. And I, I want to maybe at a future day talk about what this blip in oil prices and the use of uh, oil could mean even for your research. I think there's a lot of things that yeah. could be happening, but uh, we, yep. we could come back to that and definitely come back when your book is out. But my last question is, this: I ask every guest, is if you could recommend a guest to come on my podcast, who could it be? And maybe if there's someone in Australia you had in mind. You know, I th there are a number of people that, you know, who, who would be uh, very be great people to talk to right now, given all of these events that we've been talking about. If you haven't had Leah Stokes on your show before, okay. um, 
She's uh, sort of an early career researcher at UC Santa Barbara looking at climate change policy, uh, has a new book out on climate change policy, and has become one of the leading thinkers when it comes to sort of the, the larger battle underway uh, when it comes to action on climate. So she'd be a great person for you to talk to. Yeah, I follow her on Twitter. Good idea. Good suggestion. Mike, always a pleasure. This is your third time on the podcast, and hopefully I'll get you on again and appreciate you being an advocate out there, a climate scientist just fighting the good fight. But thanks again for coming on. Thank you, Doug. Always a pleasure. Look forward to talking again. Okay, folks, again, what a treat to host Mike Mann for a third time on the podcast. My next short conversation is with Dr. Kate Bishop-Williams at the University of Waterloo. Kate has been leading the podcast in the classroom initiative we've been doing with America Adapts. Kate checks in again to share the new resources that are now available and hopefully to give you instructors some ideas on how to use this initiative. Let's join Kate. Hey, Adapters. Today I'm hosting Dr. Catherine Bishop-Williams. Kate is a lecturer at the University of Waterloo and an epidemiologist at a local public health unit in Ontario and has been in charge of the Podcast in the Classroom initiative for the America Adapts podcast. Hey, Kate, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Doug, great to be back. All right, I need to acknowledge, too, that you are currently on maternity leave. Congratulations for the recent birth of your child. Thank you very much. I have a healthy baby boy at home. And we need to acknowledge that we're having this interview in the middle of a pandemic, and you're raising your two young children, but how's it going being homebound in all this? Things are going great. It's a very strange time for me to be home, given that I'm a public health epidemiologist, though. Part of me is missing being on the front lines during a pandemic, but very grateful that I get to be home safe with my two young kids and, and my partner. Yeah, that must be frustrating. And I'm sure that's going to lead to some interesting things in the years ahead, though, in, in relation to the work that you're doing. But let's jump into this. You have been in charge of the podcast in the classroom initiative for this podcast. This is based on a collaboration that goes back a ways now. And you came on the podcast and it's been a while. So maybe some people recognize your name and I plug you semi-frequently on the podcast. But I thought I'd let you explain what is the podcast in the classroom initiative. Sure, that'd be great. It's been a really fun time actually getting to work on all of these podcasts in the classroom guides. So what the podcast in the classroom initiative really entails is an opportunity for us to take these really rich, informative podcast episodes and bring them into a classroom setting and try and formalize that availability of these really great materials for use by teachers, professors, and instructors giving all kinds of different development opportunities across the span. And so what we did was we started listening to the episodes and talking about how could they be usefully applied in a classroom setting. And originally that looked like how could we have discussions around classroom content that comes out of these podcast episodes and what kinds of questions might be useful for discussion in different levels of classrooms based on each episode. But then it's also expanded beyond just being a fantastic discussion guides, which we're continuing to produce for several episodes all the time. But we've expanded that into some assignment guides as well, which I'm really proud of, because what that did was it formalized the experience that much more as an opportunity for, again, teachers, professors and development instructors all across that span 
to be able to formalize how they're evaluating students and participants based on the information contained in the podcast. And so we've got two different assignment guides that are part of the program now. One, which is writing a formal reflection of content that people are getting from some of the different episodes and how can they reflect on that and what that means in their personal experience, as well as another assignment guide that actually looks at how can we produce a short podcast episode relevant to some of the content that's coming out of some of those uh, podcast episodes as well. And both of these assignment guides have been used in classrooms that I've taught at the University of Waterloo. And so I'm really confident that they work great and that the students really enjoy them. I've gotten very positive feedback on both assignments as well as on the discussion guides when I've used them in my classrooms. So that's sort of where these things have started off from and we're just watching it build as we go. Yeah, I want to come back to your own experiences with it, but sort of stepping back more broadly, you are a big advocate for OER. What's that all about? OER is Open Educational Resources, and these are the types of resources that are available for use in a classroom that are available free of charge and that are available in a way that allows us to implement them in our own space and typically also involves an opportunity to modify the existing resources. And so the resources that we provide are, as I said, free to use, but are also available in a format that allows you to modify them as long as you share what you've produced and cite the original source that we've produced that initial guide for. And so the opportunity to provide these open educational resources means that we're really looking for people to go and build on them and share them further and sort of see a snowball effect for where we can take education at a free and open experience. I had to go count them today preparing for this, but you have 16 discussion guides. I didn't realize there was that many, and I have 110 episodes, and so that's a nice chunk of those. And so there's a nice quantity of material there. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited about the fact that we're moving through them and sort of starting to keep pace with the episodes again. One of the things that we do is as we start listening to each new episode as it comes out, we start thinking about whether or not there's an opportunity to develop some some questions around it. And it's really important to emphasize that we're not looking for questions that just ask about what the content was and ask our students to reiterate what they heard. We're really asking them to do some of these higher level, level thinking things that are really important ways to build their knowledge and their experience and asking them to take it a bit further again. And so with those guides that we've developed, we're looking at things like, how do we write a short newspaper review that gets at some of these things that we're starting to hear about in an episode? And how do we take that further? Encouraging our students to maybe do a little bit of research beyond what they're hearing or asking them to develop their own opinions and then substantiate their opinions with evidence from other places. And so that's some of the things that I think are really exciting about the newer guides that we're putting out there now. This might seem obvious, but just I want my listeners to know that Kate is literally listening to these episodes and then developing these very specific discussion guides, and she'll write these out and puts it in a template, sends it to me, and then these are embedded on my website. So if you're thinking, well, what are, where are these discussion guides? They're at myamericadaps.org website. We have a page dedicated that gives you some context on what this is all about, and then all 16 of those and the episode page related to it. Am I missing anything, Kate, there? I just want people to make it's completely obvious, like, this is where they're at. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I loved something you said right at the beginning there, which was that they're really specific to each of the episodes in that we listen to each episode and we look for ways that we can really draw from that specific episode. But I also want to highlight that we've developed some generic guides 
that can be used on any of the episodes that we haven't developed guides for yet that ask some more broad and open-ended questions again, but that are maybe more more aligned with being able to say, okay, from this episode, what was your favorite thing and why? And sort of developing some opinions and thought processes around that. And so they are quite specific to each episode, but then we've tried to also augment that availability with ones that are available for each episode sort of more broadly where they can be used in that sense as well. I love this process of how we decide to do a discussion guide. I'll get an email from Kate saying, you know what? This last one's not worth my time to write up a discussion guide. So I'm going to wait till the next one. And so uh, how do you determine when you're not going to create a discussion guide? And I'm just giving you a hard time here. No, that's a, it's a good question. And so <laughs> to be fair, I just want to highlight that the episodes that don't have one, it's not because they're not great episodes. They're always really great conversations. They're just not always appropriate for those higher level thinking questions. And so sometimes they're really interesting conversations, but if they're not digging deeply into some of those fleshy items that we could really dig into, sometimes they're just not appropriate for the types of questions that are really those open-ended, deep, higher level questions. And they might just be sort of generic, what are your favorite questions or what are your favorite topics that we cover, those sorts of things. And so for those episodes, again, we've got those general guides that are not specific to a particular episode, and then there might still be an opportunity to use them in that context. But sometimes they don't have the meat that allows us to really dive into what you and the interviewee are actually discussing. Oh, that you didn't have to go into that detail. You're just being very polite. These are <laughs> my year in review episodes and ones that are just more that you kind of hair down conversations. So we get it. Um, I'm just giving you a hard time. So I want to go back to your use of them in your own classroom because I want people listening to this part of I think sometimes people have a hard time visualizing, well, you know, how am I really going to use a podcast in the classroom? So you have your own curricula and then the podcast is just one piece of that. And you're saying, all right, I'm assigning you to go listen to this podcast. And, and you were saying that the students enjoyed that assignment. Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, we've got the two different assignment guides. We've got the one for developing a podcast, which I've actually used twice now, once in a small classroom and once in a 300 student classroom, which was at first quite overwhelming to try and imagine how I was going to facilitate the grading of podcasts for 300 students. So a couple of things that I did there were, number one, I divided the class into small groups of about five students and they were allowed to choose their partners. But it meant that I was dramatically, obviously, reducing the number of podcasts that needed to be graded. They were also shortened in length. So we're typically talking about a 10 minute or so podcast episode that they're developing. And then in that class, I had small sections that were meeting regularly with each of the tutorial TAs. And so the TAs were actually grading them. And then I would check in regularly to make sure that they were graded fairly and that they were sort of even across the board. And then for the smaller class, I actually had them present them to the class. So they all came in with their episodes ready on a USB stick. And we actually spent an entire lesson listening to each other's episodes. And that was a fantastically well-received way to, to grade them because the students got to hear what other students did. I had students include a rap intro in one of them where they were producing at their own episode. I had students take on roles where they were imagining that they were these high-level officials at the government and those sorts of positions. And they really got incredibly creative with it. And so that was one of my favorite teaching experiences was actually using the development of a podcast assignment guide. And then for the, the reflections on an episode, 
episode. Those are really interesting opportunities, especially when you dig into certain episodes where there can be really strong feelings one way or another. That that gives a really cool opportunity for students to tell you how that connects to their real world experience. And so I've really enjoyed reading those. And those are some of the ones that I've actually previously sent to you where we've had conversations about that's really neat that students think X, Y, or Z about what they learned and how they developed what their opinions are about those sorts of topics. So that's been really cool too. There's two resources like you're doing kind of creating your own podcast and then the actual discussion guides are related to the, this podcast. So two d- different ways to think about this. And I think we've always wanted to encourage instructors. It's not just about listening to a climate change podcast. You think about maybe you, there's other some classrooms that take a look at the guides. Even though you're not asking these questions, it might give you a template or a format for you to think about you're doing history, you're doing math, and there's podcasts out there that you like that you think would be resources for your students. You know, use discussion guys as just a, a general template on how you think you might engage them using podcasts. Yeah, absolutely. They're a great jumping off point for other episodes from other shows entirely on completely different content areas. Just a, a way to sort of think about how we can integrate those sources into our classrooms. We definitely want to get the word out. I push this on my own podcast, and I've heard from instructors that have used it, but there's a lot of professors out there. There's a lot of teachers. There's a lot of professional trainers, and we just need to get the word out. So if you're out there and you're interested in learning more, definitely visit the website. So, But Kate, what are your brainstorms on to get the word out a bit more? I think social media is always a great opportunity for us to get these sorts of resources out there. And I think having these testimonies, like the way that I'm talking about how we use them in my classroom are really great opportunities for other instructors to hopefully get inspired and say, okay, that's how that worked. And she sounds like she had a really great experience with it, which I absolutely did. And so that maybe will encourage someone to go ahead and try it. And I know that some of my colleagues are starting to pick up on these conversations that we're having here and have done something similar. Um, And so we've had some conversations with other podcast hosts and with other instructors, and we're starting to see a little bit more and more uptake all the time. All right. I am going to extend an invitation to instructor that uses these discussion guides that they can, they're invited to come on and we'll do a short interview about your experiences with it. So I'm sticking that out there. If that inspires you to actually use them, have a chance to come on America Adapts to talk about it. I'd love to hear your story. So there you go. I'm just throwing that out. And finally, Kate, if someone is interested in collaborating with you, you're working on this by yourself. You've had partners in the past before, but you're just currently working alone. You send it to me and I'm, <laughs> I check for spelling or something, but I'm I mean, I'm not here to second guess. You're a much better educator than I am. But if people are interested in working with you, are you open to that? Always open to that. I think that there's really opportunities for rich engagement in in this type of material. And so the more the merrier. And I think that something we want to highlight is that the team that we had previously, some people didn't have education backgrounds necessarily or weren't in a position where they were necessarily working as a teacher or a faculty member or an educational developer, anything like that. And we still had really rich content coming out of those discussions. And so I want to just extend the the call that much further, saying that if this is something you're excited about, then I'm sure that we can find an opportunity to engage you in this team. It doesn't necessarily need to be that you're coming at it from a role as a professor or anything else. We're really excited just to, to collaborate and to see where it goes. Definitely. Even if you're, you know, this a university student that is interested in learning how this kind of process works, and I think even in how podcasts function, it might be a, even if it's a short-term volunteer assignment, you might get a lot out of it. So, 
Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I just need to say that I've had volunteers over the years that have done amazing things for America Dabs, and I can't thank Kate enough for doing what she's doing. This is a volunteer gig that she's doing, and I'm so fortunate that I have these great resources associated with the podcast. Kate, thank you for <laughs> you've stuck with this. I appreciate our friendship and our work collaboration here, but thanks for what you're doing. It's been an absolute pleasure. I want to throw one more thought out there before we wrap things up. Though. There's something okay. really timely about these conversations. And I think that it's really important that in the context of the pandemic and where we're seeing all of these changes for increased online learning and remote learning and those sorts of things, I think it'd be really remiss for us not to acknowledge how valuable these resources could be in that context. So just to, to sh share my last sort of two cents on this, I think it's really important for us to talk about the fact that podcasts are available no matter where you are and what you're doing. And so I think that as especially formal education settings are being forced to move online, it's a really great opportunity to use some of these resources to help you augment sort of what exists as part of your teaching platform and your teaching style right now to potentially be able to use these without having to reinvent the wheel. These are assessments and discussion guides that can be used really easily in a remote learning context. And so I think that, that there's just something that we should really sort of highlight there in the context of COVID-19, that these are available to you and that we encourage you to use them and that we hope that they will lessen the burden that some people are experiencing as they try and figure out how do they actually prepare to teach in a setting that might be completely foreign to them. So if you're looking for something like that, hopefully there's ones out there that are of interest to you and that fit your context for your classroom really well. If not, as I mentioned earlier, we've got those general ones that I think are really useful for any episode. But if there's something that you're looking for, a really specific episode that fits really beautifully into your course content, but you're just looking for a little bit of support on how to get it into your course, please feel free to reach out to us. And I'm happy to look at the episode that you're working on, re-listen to it and help you develop some questions that can be used for a more formal assessment while you're looking to transition your students online, whether that's over the summer, whether it's potentially that we're forced into taking at least some of our courses to continue to stay online and remote learning into the fall. That offer sort of stands for anyone who needs it if we're looking at developing some additional guides. Excellent final point. Yeah, in the times that we're living in and the remote learning going on, excellent final point. All right, Kate, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Dr. Michael Mann for coming on the podcast. Always a treat to have him on. And congrats again, Mike, for the election to the National Academy of Sciences. So well-deserved. And thanks to Dr. Kate Bishop-Williams for the amazing volunteer work she's doing with the podcast. I feel incredibly fortunate that Kate is taking the time to make some of the podcasts available to educators. Please take a look at the link in the show notes. Maybe you want to include podcasts as part of your school, university, or workplace curricula. Okay, I don't do this enough, but I'd like to give some thanks to some folks on social media for the kind shout-outs about the pod. Peterson Toscano, Jonathan Overpeck, Linda Shy's mom, the Association for Adaptation Professionals, Lad Keith. Thanks for the social media plugs. Hey, so if you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work, think about using the podcast. I've worked with many partners before, World Wildlife Fund, Harvard, MIT, UCLA, the trustees of Massachusetts, Maybe you want to tell your story via podcast. Reach out. Let's partner. Also, I do presentations to classes and I do keynote presentations at conferences. And I know we're all taking a break from those at the moment, but feel free to contact me if you are interested in having me speak at your event. Okay, I want to give a special thanks to Mike DiGiromola. In case you didn't know, I do all the audio editing for my episodes. It's tedious work, but I want the best for you guys. 
But in this week's episode, Mike did the editing for part of what you heard today. Thanks, Mike. All right, don't forget to check out the Simpatico Studios link in my show notes. If you don't think you'd be a good fit for an interview, just come on and watch a show or two and participate in the community. I think you'll really enjoy it. Some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Adapts and ask to join. I'll prove you right away. It's a chance to hear some insider info on the podcast and see what other listeners are sharing on the wall. We've actually had some really cool conversations up on that Facebook page. On that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. Heard from some people in the last few weeks. It's just always awesome to hear you people out there and how you found the podcast, how you're using it episodes that you've enjoyed so definitely reach out just tell me you know if, if you're even if you're not in the climate adaptation space reach out let me know i'm at americadapts at gmail.com okay don't forget to check out the website americadapts.org okay adapters keep up the great work i'll see you next time